The motto of the Financial Times is without fear and without favor. The Financial Times is an independent newspaper. I was never told you have to write this because it will please this company, this advertiser. Never, ever. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from The Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Hello, Virginia. Hi. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for being with us. This is our very own talent show about the Financial Times, about our brand, about the FT people. And we have Michael Skapinka with us, and it's great to have you here. I've been working with you when I started my career, so you are one of the very, very first people I work for here at the Financial Times, so I'm a bit emotional about this episode. <laughs> and I'll let, I think, all of you know about Michael, because we have been talking about Michael a bit on the FT talent social media, that is a Financial Times contributor contributing editor, an award-winning columnist and a management educator. You uh, were born in South Africa, uh, but you have been uh, living uh, in London uh, for quite a bit now. Um, but of course, because of your job, and we're going to explore about that today, you have been really traveling all over the world. Um, in uh, your 34 years at uh, the Financial Times, you have uh, been uh, uh, from the FT Weekend editor, management editor and aerospace correspondent. Uh, you have run leadership development programs for some of the world's leading companies and organizations, including uh, the European Central Bank, Siemens, Santander, and Clifford Shands. And it's great to have you here. And we literally learn as much as possible from you. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you. Michael, the first question maybe is uh, uh, quite obvious that I'm asking you this, but um, it's what really intrigued me the first uh, time I met you, is really understanding 34 years of the Financial Times. When and how did you know you wanted to be a journalist? How did I know I wanted to be a journalist? I actually considered a couple of careers and actually my degree, my studies were in political science and then in law. I actually considered becoming a lawyer. But uh, at a certain point when I'd finished university, I actually went to work in Greece as an English teacher. And uh, after a year, the school I was working for went bankrupt. Okay, so you already saw a few trends of things that you would have reporting on. <laughs> so I decided I had always been interested in journalism. I had been a student journalist at university. So uh, what I did is I went to the Foreign Press Association, the Athens Foreign Press Association, and I got their membership book because, of course, this was before online. This was before the Internet. It was a little book. And I went to each journalist uh, in the book and I asked them if I could do some work for them. And then one day I walked into the office of the, it was the office of the New York Times and the Daily Telegraph. It was the same correspondent, a man called Paul Anastasiadis. And he uh, was the correspondent in Athens for many, many news organizations. And he listened to me talk for a while. He heard my accent and he said to me, are you from South Africa? And I said, yeah. He said, I've got this South African group of newspapers. I haven't got enough time. I tell you what, take that seat in the corner 
where there's a typewriter. They pay me £11 per article. Whatever you publish, you can keep £7. Here we go, okay. And then I was a journalist. And that's how you started your career? That's how I started my career. That's okay. First uh, takeaway, I think, proactiveness. When you understand what you want and you try, you know, to find uh, your ways into an industry, be proactive and go to the practitioners. So this is, a, you know, an example for our listeners uh, to really learn by doing. And I think that's something that, you know, um, because of all the degrees and the courses, MBAs, everything we can learn uh, in books, it's quite intriguing, I think, to, to see that um, uh, in your times, but maybe even today, it's really important to, to get up first hands-on experience. In terms of then becoming an editor and uh, literally starting your career at the Financial Times, one of the best and maybe the leading institution in financial journalism, how did you get there? What are the kind of things that uh, did you need to upskill yourself in a, certain, in a certain way? And what's your suggestion, you know, for younger journalists out there? Well, journalism has changed an enormous amount. We're talking 40 years now. And uh, as I said, there was no such thing as the internet then. Everything was in print. Today we have, and there was broadcasting, there was radio. I used to do radio journalism as well. So when I was in Athens, I also became the correspondent for LBC, which existed then, and also for CBS Radio in the US. Uh, So there was always, you know, there was broadcasting, there was print, but now there's everything. Journalism is a very integrated field now. It used to be in those days you would either be a print journalist or you would be a broadcast journalist. Now you've got to be everything. So how did I come to be at the FT? And I think there's some lessons in how to become a journalist in all of this. So while I was in Greece, I spent three years working as a journalist. I worked for a lot of different news organizations. And what I did, and I think this is something people should still try to do, try to get published in as many publications as you can. So I managed to get published in the New York Times. I managed to get published in the Daily Telegraph. And I managed to get published in the Spectator. And then I came to London. I had been a student in England. I came back to England. And I started the same thing, going around trying to become a journalist. I used to keep a folder of all my rejection letters, of all the jobs I applied for and didn't get a job. And I think there were 45 letters. Okay, so you definitely managed nicely rejection and that sense of failure. And uh, I think it's uh, it's something that is quite common when you're starting your career, but even in your mid-career, I think it's like uh, when you want to embrace a new challenge, you need to be ready to face uh, uh, rejection. How did you go about that? It's tough. And, you know, uh, when you said uh, I accepted it, I mean, each some of the rejections were worse than others. I'll tell you about one of them. The, uh, the two publications I really, really wanted to work for were The Financial Times and The Economist. The Economist, uh, you know, I thought was a very interesting, well-written publication. The Financial Times, I just loved The Financial Times. And I know you did as well. I mean, you've told I me. I did. <laughs> and I still do. I'm here. <laughs> and I've quoted you in the book yeah. saying you were an FT fangirl. I was yeah. an FT fanboy. Here we go. <laughs> and um, I applied to the Financial Times and I got a nice letter back saying, I'm sorry, we can't offer you a job at the moment. Your qualifications are quite good, which was a nice thing to hear. But we don't have anything. The Economist, I got a letter back from the editor's PA saying the editor says he doesn't have a job and he asks you please not to write to him again. So I have to say, one of my best friends, and I would say one of my mentors, 
is Ed Carr, who I met at the FT, who is today the deputy editor of The Economist. Okay. No hard feelings, okay. you know, none whatsoever. So in the meantime, I finally, after 45 letters, managed to get a job with uh, McGraw-Hill World News which had a lot of trade publications. They had energy publications. So I started working for them. And that took me, as I said, 45 rejections, and I got a job with them. But I kept applying to the FT. I applied a second time. No, thank you. I didn't even get an interview. The third time, I was working for a little magazine at McGraw-Hill at that time called International Management, which was about management. And there was a, a, a very experienced journalist in the office next door, we had little offices in those days. He came into my office and he said, I've just had the Financial Times on the phone. They're looking for a junior management writer. Do we know anybody? So I said, mm, how about me? And he said, oh, all right. Uh, I'll ask them if they're interested. I came into the building, which is the building we're in now, by the way, Bracken House, but it was a very old-looking building in those days. And I had 11 interviews. 11 interviews? 11 interviews with 11 different editors. Okay. The editor, the deputy editor. And uh, I had an interview, first of all, with a man called Christopher Lorenz, who was the management editor. And he was going to be my boss if I got the job. And he then contacted me and he said, your interviews have gone fine. The only thing is the one person who doesn't want to take you on at the Financial Times is the managing editor a man called David Bell, but he wants to give you a second interview. So he asked me to come in at 7 o'clock on a Friday night. I went in. He interviewed me, a very tough interview, and at the end of it he said, okay, I think we would like to offer you a job. It was Friday night at 7 o'clock, but it's the weekend coming up, so we would like to offer you a job. Maybe you want to think about it. So I said to him, no, I don't want to think about it. Okay. I, I want the job. So he said, really? So I said, yeah. So he said, okay, well, then I'd better type out an offer letter for you in case I get run over by a bus on the weekend. <laughs> and he typed, he said to me, I'm sorry, I'm not a very good typist, which was interesting. He typed out the letter, I've still got it, offering me a job. He said, the salary we will talk about later, which we did. And uh, I accepted the job there and then. I didn't even know the salary. That was a big driver for the brand. I wanted to, it wasn't just the brand. I wanted to work at the Financial Times because the Financial Times, I felt, and after all these years, I still feel it, was an honest newspaper. Can you elaborate a bit about that? What do you mean by honest newspaper? It's a really good question. What I mean by that, and this is particularly important today in this era that we have a fake news, the Financial Times is about money. It's about investment. And because of that, you can't lie to people. If you tell them something because you think it should be true yeah. and they invest their money and they lose their money, yeah. they're not going to trust you. And because of that, you've always got to tell them what you think is the truth. You might turn out to be wrong, but the one thing that the Financial Times insists on is get the facts right. It's the most important thing. It's integrity. The motto of the Financial Times is without fear and without favor. The Financial Times is an independent newspaper. Of course, we're supported by advertisers. We have contacts with, com with companies, with corporations, but they never influence. I was never told you have to write this because it will please this company, this advertiser. Never, ever. And so I got the job. I walked in the door. 
Uh, I remember the date. It was the 20th of October, 1986. I walked in the door of Bracken House and I looked around and I thought, I never want to work anywhere else. And the other thing that is great about the Financial Times is every four or five years, you were expected to change jobs. And this was great because it meant you always wrote about a different sector. I wrote about electronics. I wrote about leisure industries. I wrote about uh, tourism. I wrote about uh, the computer industry. I wrote about um, management. And then I became an editor, Mm -hmm. and I was the editor of the Weekend Financial Times. I was the editor of FT Special Reports. Because you have to change jobs every few years, it's a little bit like doing a new university degree every few years. And this is the thing about the FT, but it's also true about journalism. This is the great thing about journalism. There is always something new. No day is ever the same as the day before. And you're always learning. You know, as technology changed, as political developments happened, I always had to learn. And this is the great thing about it. You're never stuck. And journalism, you know we say is the first draft of history. So you are actually um, having um, a certain role in the storytelling uh, that uh, we are giving off our society, our culture. And uh, I find it very interesting what you were saying about changing and rotating jobs to really, um, that it's something that, you know, Gen Z is requesting now to employers, right? To to see the career growth, changing the fields where they can really, you know, test themselves and challenge themselves. But there is a question that I have for for you. How, as a journalist, you keep up with all the different changes and, uh, of course, a bit of like a specialised vertical knowledge on an industry? How do you prepare yourself for turning into, you know, someone that knows about uh, aerospace and then moves into pharmaceuticals. Like, how do you do that? It's a really good question, that. And what I should say is, obviously, this isn't the only way to have a career. In some careers, you advance by becoming such an expert and so knowledgeable about your your, your field that you, you, you basically help it to change and you learn the changes. So, for example, you know, if you're a doctor... As a junior doctor, sure, you might move around from, you know, obstetrics to radiology to general practice, but eventually you have to specialize because you've got to become a real, real expert. You know, you can't have a doctor who changes their career every few years. The thing about journalism, though, and this is why it's such a privilege, you are basically put in the position where you ask the experts to teach you. You go and interview people, you go and visit factories, you go and visit laboratories, and you basically say, tell me what you're doing. And sometimes people say, how can you write about this if you don't understand it as well as I understand it? And my answer always to that is the role of the journalist is to interpret this for a broader public. If you can't explain it to me... I can't explain it to the world. So how do you become specialist in these different areas? You basically speak to as many people as possible, visit as many places as possible, just have your mind open to learning. This is uh, such an interesting uh, answer that you gave because that's uh, something that I I keep asking myself even uh, for consultants and uh, other um, business roles that need to juggle between different industries, between different needs, and that's typically even what a manager needs to do when they are uh, changing companies or changing the conversation with different stakeholders within the same company. So I see um, the role and the job of a journalist as something that is uh, uh, such a a skill that can be uh, translated in other jobs and uh, in uh, in other other industries. And And I find it very fascinating that thing that 
being able to explain it to me, um, to explain it to the public. Because I think journalism is still and should still be about accessibility to what is considered um, an unaccessible slash elitist topic expertise. And you mentioned, and uh, for the, our listeners, uh, the motto of the Financial Times, without fear, without favour, is still on the paper, written down on each single printed newspaper that we have and uh, you find it with our old uh, logo uh, on uh, our pink paper. Um, how do you interpret that today? With so many different sources, people inform themselves on Twitter or Instagram. How do we keep the signature, let's say, of a journalist like yourself, as well as the brand of a paper relevant, especially to younger audiences in such a cybernetic, complicated space as the infosphere today? Okay, well, I actually think what we've got to look at, we've got this very interesting debate going on at the moment with Elon Musk buying Twitter and the verified account. What does that blue tick mean? It used to mean that you are who you say you are. Okay, he's now thinking of changing this, maybe turning it into something you can buy. I think in a time when we are not certain what the truth is, who's telling the truth, there are, as you say, so many news sources. But we've got to ask them, and I think it's something that all young people need to learn, children need to learn it. What is a reputable source? You know, what is a source you can trust? What is a trustworthy source? And so I think if you can create a brand like the Financial Times, where you know they are doing their best to tell the truth, I think you can establish a niche in that way. And I think it's true as a journalist as well. If you become known to the people you write about as somebody who will always accurately represent the truth, not necessarily saying things that they like or backing their company, but if they say, all right, I didn't like everything you wrote, but I realized you were being honest about it. Mm -hmm. I think that is how you establish yourself, not just in journalism, but in the world generally today. I think this is uh, um, really interesting in terms of like building trust. And that's something that you need to do uh, with customers, especially with younger generations uh, of any brand. And today, leaders and brands are asked, requested by society to really uh, meet certain standards in terms of like their actions towards that trust relationship. And uh, because, of course, the competition is so high in any field, of course, the one of news is one of them. But let's think about uh, all the other services that other companies are offering. You need to Keep being true to yourself and have a mission and a, a, a vision for what your company is standing for. And that's something that you write quite a lot about in your last book. So we uh, got the presentation a few um, weeks uh, ago here at the Financial Times at Brackenhauser. He's inside the Leaders Club. I really highly suggest you to read this because uh, uh, Michael is walking us through how top companies deal with uh, pressing business issues. And uh, here you are collecting uh, some of the best meetings and uh, interviews and as well like really connections that you had with business leaders. How did you come up with the idea of uh, the book and starting this book? And uh, what is um, maybe the best lessons for some of the younger listeners out there out of uh, the Leaders Club conversations? Okay, let me ans answer your first question first. How did I get this idea for the book? So I moderate many FT events. Mm -hmm. And I moderate uh, events uh, for Headspring, which is where you and I met, which is the FT's executive education company. And I moderate events for an organization called FT Forums. Yeah. 
which is a networking event for companies. And we have so much information. We have top speakers, top CEOs coming to this, and there are different groups. There's a, 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 a high potential leaders group coming to FT forums. There's an FT. There's an FT forums women's group, and at the end of one of them. Um, I, I said to Mike Hepburn, who's the managing director of FT Forums, you know, we've got so much information here. Why don't we write a book about it? And this is where the idea for Inside the Leaders Club came from, is putting together all of the information available to the FT, both that the FT has published, but also the meetings that the FT has held. We put this book together. So that was the origin of the book. What are the lessons uh, for this for younger readers and for all of you watching this now? I think there are a couple of things because there's some very strong themes in the book. And uh, I think I would like to uh, highlight three themes in the book. The first is that I think we have had a revolution in the past couple of years uh, between uh, managers and the people they manage. I think the balance of power has shifted it's shifted away from bosses towards the workers. This has happened, I think, uh, largely for demographic reasons. Uh, in most um, developed economies, and I include here countries like Japan, uh, Korea, also China, we basically have an aging population. We have a shortage of young people. And so young people, all of you, are in a powerful position. There aren't enough of you. And therefore, you have more choices now. And I think that means that companies have to make workplaces places where people really want to work. And we saw this with uh, the uh, pandemic, with the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns. When the lockdowns lifted and companies said to people, we want you back in the office, as we all know, a lot of people have said, I'm not going back every day. I will come in some days a week, but I don't want to come in every day. And managers have found, some of them have tried to insist, like Elon Musk, but generally they found that people have a choice now. So I think that's lesson theme number one, is that uh, the balance of power has shifted. It's shifted towards employees. Theme number two, the multi-generational workforce. Uh, we've got people who are entering the workforce for the first time. We've got people working in the company who are easily old enough to be their parents, maybe old enough even to be their grandparents. We've got a multi-generational workforce. Now, as you see, if you read the book, I'm not a big fan of these labels you know, baby boomers, millennials, Gen Z, because people are different from each other. We're all individuals. But I think people are at different stages in their careers. They are at different stages in their lives. People starting out who are very different situation, very hard for them now to find housing in most big cities. They don't have the kind of pensions that their parents and grandparents had. And then you've got an older generation who are much more secure. You've got to learn how to get on. And I think each of the generations in the workforce has got something to offer. We get a lot of energy. And I have to say from the generation coming in now, the millennials and Gen Z, I find a real seriousness about work. People take it seriously. We can talk later about things like quiet quitting. I actually yeah. think the majority of people really want to work. They really want to get things done. They take life seriously. They've been through some serious time. I mean, you know, we've had COVID, you know, yeah. in Europe now, really, for the first time since the Second World War, we've got a major war going on, which has affected many people. So that is issue number two is the multi-generational yeah. workforce. And then the third issue is that companies realize now that they are part of society. And society makes demands of them. And young people coming into the workforce now, many of them want to work for a company they believe in. Now, this isn't new. As I said to you, I wanted to work for the Financial Times all that time ago because it was a news organization I believed in. But I think it's a very, very important issue today.
And I think like this is uh, something that we uh, see in many different countries. Uh, it's not just a matter of like the the word here in the UK. It's really reflected uh, all over the planet. And uh, Something I really loved about this book is uh, the diversity of uh, cultures that uh, uh, you are touching upon, as well as the cases that you're bringing in. And uh, considering all the countries and the cultures that you have met in your amazing career, how did you change your communication and your approach to the different countries that you met? This is such an interesting question. So I've lived in four countries. I speak four languages. I have traveled to nearly 40 countries for work. There's one big issue. Uh, it's been very favorable for somebody like me who grew up speaking English that English is now the world language. Not because English is a better language. It's just historical circumstances. We had the British Empire, which spread English, and then after the Second World War, when the British Empire collapsed, we had the, the power of America. So, in other words, just for that reason, English became what Latin or Greek yeah. or Arabic once were. So, the one issue I've learned is if you are a native speaker of English, as I have, if you've been speaking English your whole life, you really need to learn how to speak to other people. Because I think uh, there's a certain kind of business English that everybody understands. And what I found is you often have a situation where, let's say, you have Argentinians, Germans, Japanese, Chinese... Indonesians in the room, everybody's fine. They speak English. Then you get a native English speaker from America or Canada or the UK or Australia, and suddenly nobody understands what they're saying. Because I think native English speakers do not understand how difficult it is to work in another language. Now, I worked in Greece. I had to work in Greek. I realized how difficult it is to work in a second language and what an achievement it is. So this is one of the very important things I've learned. That's lesson number one from, a, from an English speaker, native English speaker's point of view. Lesson number two, and what I've discovered, is people, there are obviously cultural differences, there are national differences, but people don't really differ that much. Most people in the world and most young people in the world want the same things. They want respect, they want interesting work, and they want to earn enough to live on. I don't think that changes. How it's changed, it's made me realize that uh, there are many different places in the world. You can't assume your way of doing things is better. You've got something to learn from absolutely everybody. And one of the things I did in my last few years on the staff of the Financial Times, I wrote an article about business travel. And the reason I loved business travel, I like traveling on business more than I like being a tourist. Okay, tell me more about that. Why, why is that? Because if you're a tourist, you basically go to the beach, you go to a museum, you go to a restaurant. You know, maybe you talk to somebody. If you go somewhere on business, you go into people's lives. You go into their offices, you go into their factories, you talk to them about what really matters to them. You really get a chance to see the country and learn about the country in a way that you don't do if you're a tourist. So other than living in the country, which I've done and you've done, it's the best way to get to know a place. Michael, how do you collect all this uh, uh, knowledge when you're traveling? Do you have a habit? Do you have a journal? How do you do that? I just try and remember it. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I send members of my family an email and I say, I want to tell you all of this, but also I want to remember all these yeah. things. You know, you've got to remember I was and am a writing journalist. So as soon as I got something, I try and include it in what I write. I also, and I hope this lasts as I get older, I've got a good memory. 
Now, I remember okay. things and I can, I can put them into my writing. As you see in the book, I've remembered things that happened, you know, long before the internet, for example. Where was one of my questions? Because it's so full of details on how, even how you met that person and what happened during the meeting. And I was like, how, how does he collect all this knowledge? So it's all in, in your brain. It's in my brain, but also, you know, I mean, now we've got everything we wrote online. But I think before, not that long ago, before 2004, you can have a specialist database, but otherwise there's no record of what I wrote. At home, I've got, I think, seven very big volumes of all of my clippings, all of my articles, every one cut out with a date and stuck in this book. How, how many articles have uh, you been writing? I don't know, thousands. Thousands. <laughs> Sometimes when I did this, I had to actually take down one of these big volumes uh -huh. and think, I think it was, I don't know, in 1991. And finally, ah, there was the article. I would love to to search that uh, archive once. Anyway, so I was. Uh, let's go back to let's go back inside the leaders club, Michael. How um, in this uh, multi generational um, office and office life, we talk quite a lot about cross mentorship. So on how younger people, of course, need to look up to the more senior ones and learn from them. But also he's a bit reversed because of uh, uh, the digital disruption that we have seen and we have seen. So senior people can learn new skills and new approaches from uh, younger employees. My question to you is, um, what's your view on that on cross mentorship? And then I loved chapter six on uh, your in your book about how to lead star performers. Can, uh, can we walk through the cross-mentorship model and then uh, try to think how do you manage younger people that are star performers? How did you see great leaders doing that? Okay, so just to answer your, your first question, cross-mentorship, I am very committed to this. I think just as people coming into the workforce can learn from people who've been there for a long time, Uh, so people who've been in the workforce for a long time can learn from the new people coming. And if I can just mention, I hope you don't mind, Virginia, a personal story. When we were working yeah. in <laughs> you started to prepare the whole idea of FT Talent. And you asked me to look at your, um, your, your slide deck that you were going to present to the CEO. And I learned a lot from that because I learned how you were presenting information. It was much more visual than I was used to. Uh, it used, I mean, I think in, in a lot of things now, a lot of the people coming into the workforce, they are naturally multimedia. So video clips, you know, uh, little clips, um, some visual representation, I think is one of the things I'm really learning. The other thing, and this is a big, big development that you really are seeing at the Financial Times, is the new importance of data. And what we're seeing is a lot of really talented, talented younger journalists coming in who are experts at handling data, who can pull up stories out of the data. So I've learned just, you know, two examples of things I've learned from younger colleagues. I think we've all got to be humble about this. We can all learn from each other. And this idea that... I don't think it's that common, but some younger people saying, oh, these old people, they, 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 they're past it. You know, they don't know how any of this is. Um, you know, I had somebody saying, I had to deal with somebody the other day. They didn't even know how to turn a Word document into a PDF. You know, why should I deal with people like this? We've all got something to learn from each other. And I think that's one of the most important things about the multi-generational workforce. The ability to work with people of different ages, a fantastic opportunity. So I think that was the point number one. Then you asked me about managing star performers. And 
what this comes back to is it comes back to what you mentioned about being a journalist. When you become a manager and when you become a leader, you are often managing people. You are usually managing people who know more about their work than you do, whatever organization you're in. And it doesn't matter sort of, you know, uh, what they're doing. For example, uh, if you are working in a manufacturing company and you go into the warehouse or you go onto the factory floor, the people doing that job know much more about it than you do. The people in dealing with the customers always know more about the customers than you do. So in that kind of organization, or if you're in a highly specialized organization, uh, you know, I used the example of DeepMind, you know, one of the most highly regarded artificial intelligence companies in the world. And, you know, I talked about how managers work there. How do you manage people who know so much? And it's the skills of a journalist. Ask them. Just ask them. Get them to explain to you what they're doing. And also, asking somebody to explain something to somebody who's not that much of an expert is a very good discipline. Because if you can't explain it in simple terms, maybe you don't understand it as well as you think you do. So I think managing people, it's about if I had to have one word for being a journalist or being a manager or being a, anybody really going into the workforce, curiosity. Be curious. Ask people, what are you doing? Can you explain to me what you're doing? Not only will you learn from it, but you're showing those people respect. People like to be asked about what they're doing. They like to be shown, actually, I understand you're doing something important. So I think when it comes to managing star performers, be curious about them. You know, ask them what they're doing and get them to explain it and say to them, look, you know more about this than I do. So if I'm going to manage the organization, I need to have a better understanding of what you're doing. But if there is one thing that we see in big organizations for is the silos modality of working, a bit territorial. I know what I'm doing. You're with a commercial side, so we shouldn't talk to you. That's maybe what happens in this state-church relationship and most of you, the time you have with cultural products or cultural industries, such as the one of journalism, theater, museums. It happens quite a lot. You have uh, the commercial side, the one that needs to make money, and then the intelligence on the other side, so the, the minds. And I would love to, um, if you have any cases or like if you would love to share your experience around that, how do we go around uh, territorial leaders? And people that approach the job as I'm defending my team and defending my department. And you are a manager and maybe your job is really being that hybrid role in the middle, a bit the diplomat. How would you go about that? Especially if you're a younger person that doesn't earn or that, that I mean, is earning and doesn't have yet the trust of a system. How do you uh, set yourself up for success with such a leadership, a territorial leadership? Really, really good question. And actually, it's a really relevant question for the Financial Times because at the Financial Times, because we believe so strongly in editorial independence and editorial integrity, in fact, the commercial and the editorial sides keep a real distance from each other. When I became a manager, I had to talk to the commercial side. And what you've got to start to do, I think, is to understand what their needs are, where are they coming from, and explain to them where the journalists are coming from. I often had to explain to the commercial people, if we change what we write to suit your customer, to suit your company advertiser, we're not going to be much used to that advertiser in the future. It's explaining that. Now, if you're a young person in an organization, silos are real. Territorialism is, is real. As human beings, we are territorial. You know, we've always done that since, you know, Prehistoric time, it's human nature. Once again, I think curiosity and interest. 
if you go to somebody who's very territorial, very defensive, and you say to them, instead of saying, stop being that way, you know, say to them, you know, can you just explain to me what's up? Maybe they'll be impatient. Maybe they won't have time. Just keep trying. It's all about understanding where people are coming from um, and also understanding, for example, that people are maybe working on different things and they think they're not friends with each other, whereas actually they're working on the same thing and you can bring them together. You know, it takes time. You're not going to win every battle either. We don't live in utopia. You know, we live in a real world where, as I say, people are territorial. But I think... The more you can ask people, tell me what you're doing, try and think also what is behind what they're saying, what is behind that territoriality. You know, what are they really defending? The other thing, I found this as a manager, one of the most valuable things I ever learned, and it's a skill I think you can use anywhere in life, is repeat back to people what they said to you. So if somebody says to you, you know, in this department, we don't really want to deal with Department X because Department X does this and this and that, and I don't like the way they do it, and I don't like their systems. If you then say, okay, so you don't like Department X because you're worried about their systems, and you don't think they say, well, that's right, and they say, tell me a little bit more about that. I think often all people want, and this is true of a manager, it's true of a parent, all people want is to know that they've been listened to and really listen to. And the way you can show somebody that you've listened to them is by telling them what they told you and doing it in good faith, doing it honestly, so that you can show them, actually, I've really heard what you've said. And I think it's a, such a good skill for leaders. It's being a, a good listener. And I think this um, is not just about internal leadership, but it's also externally when uh, you're facing uh, new clients' needs and you're trying to interpret the market as well. So uh, not as, um, you know, I think as a manager or as, as an innovator, as a disruptor, you need to listen first. And I think what you talked about before, business travels, it's uh, quite intriguing because to me it's the best way to listen to new things and just, you know, really being the, the one traveling. And uh, in a certain sense, even like invading someone else's space uh, gives uh, you the opportunity to be listening and only listening. And I think that's such an important and undervalued uh, skill most of the time. So um, thank you so much, Michael. You have shared so much. I love this. I, I would love to stay even longer and longer. But one of the very, very special parts of uh, the Talent Show podcast is that we welcome challengers to our show. So, Michael, we are going to welcome now in the studio the two challengers that we have for you today that are going to ask you the two questions of the day. And I'll leave the floor then to our two challengers to ask directly to Michael Skapinka all their questions. Desi, let's start with you. Let's give a, a little introduction about you, uh, what you have been doing, why you're here, FT Talent, uh, how did you came? And then, of course, uh, your question to Michael. Yeah, thank you, Virginia. My name is Desislava. I'm from Bulgaria, and I was part of the 2020 Challenge Edition, which was very, very insightful and amazing experience. Currently, I live here in London and work as a data analyst. Lately, I have seen a lot of debates in the online space regarding the which is the most underrated quality a business leader should possess. Some people say it's kindness, other claims it's the empathy. Can you please share your point of view with us? Well, it's a really good question, Desi. Uh, I think kindness matters, empathy matters decisiveness matters. You can't always be kind, unfortunately. 
I would say if I had to think of one word that a business leader, a characteristic that a business leader needs, I would say it's the ability to integrate. The ability to integrate a lot of information, a lot of different situations, and a lot of different people. In other words, to put their ego a bit further back and to think, what am I looking at here and how can I bring it all together? Information comes at us now at such a fast rate, not only commercial business information, but also geopolitical information. Business leaders now have to deal with geopolitical issues that they haven't had to deal with before. They've got to take positions. They're expected to take positions. The ability to integrate, I think I would say that is the number one characteristic. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate the answer. All right. Theo. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, thank you so much for letting me join the FT Talent podcast. Oh, we are so happy to have you here. So, Theo, tell us a bit more about you, um, where you're coming from, and, of course, you ask your question to Michael. Of course. Um, I'm from Hong Kong, and I came to London to study law. I'm a second-year law student at King's College London. Uh, right now, um, previously, I joined the FT Talent for Connie Challenge, which, which was in collaboration with Connie University in Italy. Um, it was um, same as Desi. It was really fun. Um, Michael, um, first, thank you very much for sharing. Um, I, I'm actually a big fan of your book, Inside the Leaders Club. Um, well, in your, like, this newly released book, you talk a lot about how corporations can meet society's demand, especially you talk about ESG, uh, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. I think, um, values do play a very important role um, in this society right now. And um, my question for you is, how can a corporation um, meet the needs of shareholders, make profits while being socially responsible? Uh, Theo, thank you. That is a really interesting question. And the answer is that it is sometimes really difficult. It's sometimes really difficult to make all of those things work. Uh, I talk about one company in my book, which I think has managed to do this. It's um, Walmart, the big U.S. retail giant. Now, Walmart is a company that gets a lot of opposition. A lot of campaigners really love to hate Walmart. And I don't want to defend Walmart. I'm not here to represent Walmart. Walmart has been criticized, for example, for how much they pay their employees, for, uh, you know, the fact that they've wiped out a lot of small retailers. But I think what Walmart discovered, and this was really during Hurricane Katrina, was um, actually if you start to do good for people, you are more highly regarded by your customers, you become a better place to work. But I think what Walmart began to discover is that they could actually make money by being more environmentally responsible. They discovered that if they cut their energy use, that helped to cut their costs. If they cut their packaging, that meant they used less plastic, their goods were lighter, they were cheaper to transport. I think it's not always easy to do this, but I think for ESG to work, companies have got to find that golden spot where basically what works for the shareholders works for society as well. It's not always possible. And I don't want to be idealistic about it or starry-eyed about it. You know, we see a lot of pressure, for example, on the fossil fuel companies. They can try to mitigate their, their, the damage they're doing to society. They can start to move to more sustainable energy. But frankly, sometimes you're not going to be able to do it. Sometimes what's good for shareholders is not good for society. The companies that can make that work are the companies I think are going to have the most enduring future. 
they're going to be more profitable, and they're going to have that social license to operate in our society. So I don't know if I've answered your question, Theo. Like I say, I don't think there's a simple answer. No, yeah, you did did, uh, answer my question really well. Thank you so much. I really love your book, especially uh, when you talked about um, the values um, that society can impose on corporations. I think um, it's important to think long term um, when it comes to, you know, um, managing um, a corporation. Um, So thank you so much. Um, I really enjoy um, speaking with you. Well, thank you both. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much, guys. But above all, thank you to you, Michael, for sharing all your wisdom with us for our lovely conversation today. Of course, check it out inside the Leaders Club, how top companies deal with pressing business issues. It's newly released. I really highly suggest to read the book. I learned so much from the book, but above all from a person like Michael that I think you notice how nice and kind he is. And I think he's one of the best qualities I found in in him uh, as my one of the very first people I worked with and for here at the Financial Times. So thank you so much, Michael, for your kindness today and for sharing uh, all of your insights. Well, thank you very much, Virginia. Thank you to Desi and Theo, and thank you to all of you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Up to the next episode. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.